happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 95 for May the 16th, 2018. I am Wes Fryer, joining you here from Oklahoma City, a beautiful spring day where it actually felt like spring. I thought we were just going to jump straight to summer, uh, but I am the technology director here at the Cassidy School. And joining me, as always, is Jason Neifer, but joining me for the second time as Dr. Jason Neifer after walking across the stage with the robe. So, Jason, are you ready to deliver and pontificate sermons wearing the robe on the benefits of EdTech now? Um, I think I am. And in fact, I think I'm like every the podcast will now convert to a three hour lecture of me every week, you know, waxing poetically about educational technology. And heck, we'll just go education, too. So um, I am joining you tonight from Missoula, Montana, um, home of the University of Montana, which is, happens to be the home of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school, which I am uh, the curriculum director and assistant director of that organization. And um, the weather is absolutely lovely here in Missoula. We had a really late winter this year. Uh, it, it happened to dump snow much later than it usually does, and that converted to cold rain. And finally, in the last week, we've had a little bit of rain and a lot of clear skies and sunshine. So spring is finally here in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And for those of you who join us for just the first time, the EdTech Situation Room is a podcast where we take headlines ripped from uh, uh, mainstream media and look at them from an educational technology standpoint. And just so happens this week has a lot of interesting bits that we think will impact schools. If you're interested in learning more about any of the topics we talk about, all the links from the show are on our show notes um, at our website, edtechsr.com, where we link both to a master Google document where we have every link we've talked about since the beginning of the podcast. And, and we have episodes 100 here coming up um, uh, not too far away. Sometime in June, we'll be celebrating episode 100. And you can also download archives of the podcast there or subscribe to the podcast anywhere where finer podcasts are aggregated. And with that in mind, Wes, where would you like to start this week? Well, we've had a couple of breaking news headlines the last few weeks, so we might as well uh, start there. You'd put Senate votes to preserve Obama-era net neutrality rules, and I dropped the article from today, uh, five hours ago, at uh, CNET, Senate votes to restore net neutrality. Here's how every senator voted. Um, it notes that there were three different Republican senators that crossed the aisle, and I guess the Democrats really wanted to have this on um, a vote for you know the record to see where where folks stand, it is extremely unlikely that uh, that will pass both the House of Representatives as well as uh, not be vetoed by our chief executive, uh, he who must not be named. Um, and I am sad about that because I think net neutrality is something really important that needs to be enshrined. And so uh, the uh, I guess, director of the FCC. Is that what his title is? Um, uh, chair. Chair, th thank you, of the FCC, uh, has promised to roll that back. And so, you know, we're seeing, as we've seen in many other parts of uh, United States politics, uh, corporations sort of get their way and uh, get to do what they want. So the large companies are able to, uh, you know, throttle and change and, and change price, et cetera, and probably not a great thing for the American consumer. However, I will say that, we talked a little bit last week about, I think it was last week, uh, about 5G and about T-Mobile and the incredible bandwidth that we're going to have. 
And I, I think that's going to be a tremendous game changer when, you know, kids come into the class and it's not just a, an LTE connection that can, you know, stream, you know, probably some, somewhere less than a hundred megabits per second, you know, but when, uh, you know, kids come in and, and have the capacity to absolutely blow away probably anything that we have today in terms of Wi-Fi network speed on a, sh- on a shared network. Um, that's going to be a game changer. And, you know, T-Mobile is, is making the argument for their merger that, you know, it's about investment. That's why they should merge with Sprint. Um, and we're hearing those kind of arguments from other companies as well, saying that investment needs to be incentivized. So I think I know where you stand, Jason, but you have an opinion on this uh, other than probably the fact that it's not going to pass the uh, the House and the president. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, if it's not obvious, I am highly pro net neutrality and was very disappointed at the FCC's ruling that they would try to scale back the Obama era rules for net neutrality. Um, one thing that's important to note is that the Obama era rules went into place and there had been no massive attempts against net neutrality at that point by major telecoms and other internet providers in the United States. And so we don't know exactly what happens when um, the, the, I believe it's a June date comes and goes and net neutrality rules are no longer in existence. Um, so it, it's important to note that we'll have to keep a close eye on internet service providers across the United States to discuss what that looks like. The other factor that's also at play is that several states have moved forward to enact their own versions of net neutrality and it's a little difficult in, um, you know, having 50 states and 50 sets of rules. It'll make it difficult for telecom companies to, you know, operate in different standards across the the universe. But uh, I do think that it's it's a, a positive direction that at least politicians are standing up for this. But it is highly unlikely that the House of Representatives would support this bill, and what appears to be highly unlikely that um, the president will sign the bill. But as most major news outlets were reporting in the past 24 hours. Democrats actually didn't expect to win this vote. And in fact, um, Susan Collins from Maine was an expected crossover. She voted for the resolution. Uh, uh, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska is not surprising that she crossed the aisle. She tends to be a little more independently minded than other Republican senators. More importantly, she also comes from a state that highly benefits from net neutrality, Alaska, which has tons of, of different internet service providers of, of different types, ways, shapes, and forms, uh, very much benefits, the end users very much benefit from the fact that people aren't trying to, to sift profit off the top of internet service providers by, you know, making deals with content providers to provide better service for this content or that content. And then John Kennedy from Louisiana is the more surprising one to me, and I did try to look up to find out if he had made a public statement on this about why he crossed the aisle. But the important piece is, is that it's being discussed, and obviously it's a political move now that the Democrats are seeking in the Senate to get everyone on record about net neutrality, in which most people in the United States do support. Uh, the support for it uh, tends to go down slightly when people understand the issue, but there's still a large majority of Americans, whether you understand net neutrality or not, that support the concept. And so we um, obviously are looking for some support Support from our elected officials. Uh, Montana, as a side note, uh, is taking its own stand against the repeal of net neutrality. The governor of Montana, Steve Bullock, has previously announced that Montana will only purchase contracts and will make it part of contract rules for internet service that they ad- ad- adhere to net neutrality uh, propositions. And what that means, because 
Montana-based telecoms, there's so few of them, and the ones that exist do rely on government contracts, especially for very rural areas in Montana, that will effectively create net neutrality in big sky country. Uh, but an important thing to keep an eye on, and in an otherwise very charged political season, this should be an important thing if you care about technology in schools. This is an important thing you should keep a close eye on. One other article related to this that we can pick up now uh, that was a carryover from last week was Ars Technica on May the 7th. AT&T will ask Supreme Court to cripple the FTC's authority over broadband. Um, and this is going to the Supreme Court. Um, AT&T won a key ruling in August 2016. Um, the most recent went in favor of the FTC, um, but they are trying to uh, basically uh, cripple their ability to regulate it all. And so right. that would allow the ISPs to do whatever they want. And what we really do need is for Congress to take action. Unfortunately, that is probably not going to happen on this issue unless we have a shift in the majority uh, and we see, uh, you know, Democrats come into the majority or perhaps we see a radical change in the Republican Party, which I don't think we're going to see. But the current climate is not one that seems to at all favor regulation and absent regulation you know, it's 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 not clear uh, what's going to happen. And that's really what needs to take place is that the legislative body that's supposed to pass these laws needs to pass laws that uh, that regulate this or or, you know, define what <clears throat> what the limits and boundaries are going to be in terms of companies and FCC regulation, et cetera. Um, so I don't think we're going to see anything dramatic, you know, happen with schools. Um, we've talked about this before as far as what is enough bandwidth and, you know, how is that going to change and. Um, I think our perceptions of that are going to change, are going to, you know, move up again with, with 5G, um, if the predictions that, that they have of what this is going to come are going to just, you know, be as revolutionary. But we always kind of hear these sorts of hyperbole, hyperbolic, you know, pronunciations, um, about new technologies, but I don't know. Well, time will tell. We have a lot of Android articles tonight and I feel like I can actually, you know, participate and uh, have a I have got a stake in this game because one of my realizations we talked about last week is you know until I get a new handset I'm probably not getting a new operating system you know I I don't have Oreo it's not coming to the Motorola E4 uh $140 phone here and certainly not Android P so um what should these Android articles really caught your fancy this week Jason Sure, let's actually start on that very topic. Um, Android Central reported on May 13th that Project Treble is turning out to be an important part of the Android update strategy. And so to inform um, our listeners, if you are not deep into the Android universe, uh, the problem with Android, one of the problems with Android is that there's been deep what's called fragmentation. What I mean by that is that every phone that has Android has a slightly different version of Android. And at any given time, there are thousands of active versions of Android that are kind of the same, but mostly a little bit different here and there because they are tweaked for the hardware that they're on or the carrier that provides the phone or obviously the manufacturer that provides the phone. And one of the things that's been difficult about Android is that unlike iOS that tends to update uh, uh, iPads and iPhones, sometimes five or six years back it can provide an update to those devices. Android can't make that promise because the update goes from Google to the manufacturer, the manufacturer to the carrier, and whether that makes it to your phone or not is a very different story. But starting with Android Oreo or Android O or Android 8.0, if you prefer, Google had started implementing something called its Project Treble framework. And what that does is that it puts its 
updatable part of the operating system uh, very deep in the core of, of, of the OS. And so when Google releases updates, kind of like updating software like the Gmail app or your Facebook app, they can release updates to your phone that in essence allow it to update it without your carrier or manufacturer's uh, 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 participation. And as it turns out, when Android P was released last week, that's the newest version of Android that's currently in beta, several phones, as opposed to just Google-based phones, were able to install the Android P beta, not the least of which is the so-called essential phone, which the creator of Android um, created a, a, a separate company to make Android phones, and the essential phone is considered to kind of be the shadow Google phone. And so there's this notion that, that Android's working pretty hard now to make sure that even if you have a phone that isn't a, a, a premier phone or a high-end phone or sometimes called a flagship phone, you can still get updates to that operating system. So Android nerds, uh, the good news is, is that over time, not immediately, but over time, it's likely that more and more Android phones will get updates to the newest operating system more quickly because they are doing this yeah, this project uh, Tango Android framework. And so, um, Wes, I know that that you coming off of iOS and now being an Android user, that's something that you've now noticed is that things are getting updated and you're not getting those updates. Do you think that that affects either positively or negatively your user experience? Well, definitely. I mean, from a security standpoint alone, that's one of the things that I had heard about earlier was, you know, Apple did such a nice job of getting so many of its users over to the newest version that helps, helps developers. It's a whole virtue. It's a cycle of feedback that's very positive, you know, because you're going to have more secure devices, but you're going to have more people on a common platform for developers to implement the latest features, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's not a game changer for me. Um, I'm actually interested as we talk about some of the uh, other phones, I think I think you've got that under uh, maybe tech lust, uh, some new uh, phone coming out. Uh, one of my uh, coworkers is using the essential phone and I was looking at that. In fact, I stayed up late later than I needed to a few nights ago, uh, looking at other phones and you know, some of those are about half the cost of a quote flagship thousand dollar phone. I mean, that's honestly part of the reason I decided to say, forget this too, is I, I think it's ridiculous to spend that much money on a phone. I know it's a computer, but still it's going to be, it's not disposable, but it is something that's not going to be, you know, lasting 10 years. Um, so I'm happy to get by with, with, uh, tech that is, is not quite cutting edge, uh, in that respect, but I, Definitely think they're going in the right direction with the uh, encouraging the updates because that's something. Uh, it's not a, it's not a horrible sickness, but it's not a great thing about the Android ecosystem. And I'm glad to see Google trying to address that by finding ways to encourage developers to keep stuff patched and release more current versions. Yep, absolutely so. And then there's another article that's related to that that talks about the same broader issue. Um, this is from our, um, I almost read the AT&T article there. This is from, actually also from Artside, and I keep looking at the wrong, the wrong area here. This is from XDA Developers, which is a kind of an Android hacking community. Um, Google is starting to require original equipment manufacturers, phone manufacturers to update their phones, uh, to the latest security patch. That's one of the things that, um, uh, Google has done in the last few years to try to make Android phones safer is that it has a security patch that is installable, I believe, in Android 6.0 and beyond. And that's supposed to be updated regularly by your manufacturer. But of course, 
words, the manufacturer sometimes doesn't do the updates monthly, and then they hand them on to the carriers, and sometimes the carriers don't push out the updates. It's, it's kind of a big mess. Um, but one of the things they're starting to do in order to allow manufacturers to use Android, then this probably requires a bit of an explanation. Anyone can use Android open source. It's a piece of software you can download from free from the Internet, install on any hardware you want to, whether it works or not, requires oftentimes a developer or a hacker to do that. Um, when you get Android on a Samsung phone or um, an XTE, or I'm sorry, ZTE phone or a Google phone, that's actually uh, a piece of software that's quite a bit enhanced over the open source version of Android. And one of the things that Google does is that it makes restrictions on the commercial version of Android, including saying that if you want Google apps, so what I mean by that is Gmail and the associated applications that come with Chrome, I'm sorry, that come with Android, then you need to follow certain sets of rules. And so Google starting to crack down on manufacturers and tell them you have to offer patches, uh, security patches for X number of years after your release of phone. So it's the same idea, but I do think Google's working hard here to try to add a more elegant experience, you know, for the, the most popular operating system on mobile on earth. Shout outs in our chat room to both Marta joining us from Central America, uh, from Honduras and Peggy George from Arizona. So that's awesome. It is rainy in uh, Honduras, she says. And in Missoula, Montana, too. <laughs> well, uh, let's pick up one other Android article um, that you put in, and this is the one about uh, the forthcoming OnePlus. Uh, yeah, the OnePlus 6 phone. Yeah. Um, Talk a little bit about that, if you would. Sure. The Verge uh, is reporting today that OnePlus, which is a Chinese manufacturer of Android phones, has released uh, a release date, which is next week, of the so-called OnePlus 6 phone. And um, and again, I feel kind of necessary to tell my my, my brethren here, uh, Dr. Fryer, about the, the, some of this past Android stuff that he probably wasn't paying attention to previously. But OnePlus was a very popular alternative phone company, and I guess uh, the my favorite Android podcast is, is all about Android on the Twit Network, and they used to make a joke that it's been X number of episodes since uh, uh, OnePlus did something stupid. And they, you know, had terrible marketing issues. They had phone availability issues. Uh, they had bad advertising that was uh, not very well accepted in the West. But uh, OnePlus is a company that prides itself on the notion that you can sell flagship-style hardware with with a clean version of Android. So that's unmodified version of Android that looks just like what it looks like on a Google-based phone um, and sell it for dramatically less than other manufacturers. And so the OnePlus 6, which is the sixth version of their OnePlus phone, is going to be released next week, and it's an absolutely beautiful phone. Um, it's massive. It's 6.3 inches which for me probably takes it off of my radar. I think 6 inches and 6.3 inches in particular is too big for a phone, even for me, even though I was one of the first guys to have a large phone because I was an early Galaxy Note user. Um, but uh, it has a, a wonderful specs inside of it and a beautiful screen and is uh, a great value. The high-end phone, which comes with 256 gigs of, of storage, 
um, is is just like six hundred and forty dollars. It's relatively inexpensive compared to similar phones. So um, I've not bought a new phone in quite some time. I've been working with used Android phones a year too old. They tend to be dramatically cheaper, um, especially the big names like LG and Samsung phones. Um, but that does have me at least very basically uh, interested in that. I don't know if I would drop six hundred bucks on a new phone right now. But whew, that is a very, very, very tempting item. Another article I just dropped in that relates to Chinese uh, Android phone manufacturers is uh, we had a really weird flip-flop happen uh, in, the, in the phone market. So the United States government banned this company ZTE and their phones from selling in the United States. And if I'm remembering this right, the founder of ZTE had his roots in the Chinese military. And so the thought was that this is a very hackable and insecure phone and that perhaps uh, actually it alludes a little bit to some things we've heard about Kaspersky. And I've got an article about that tonight, too. Uh, but basically that these weren't going to be secure phones that folks in the United States should be using. And so it was a complete ban saying you cannot sell your phones. Well, the article I dropped uh, from Vox on May 15th actually says Trump helps sanction Chinese phone maker after China delivers a big loan to a Trump project. And that's in Indonesia, um, which I hadn't actually heard that angle of it until uh, seeing this article. It was really weird. Why would Trump suddenly say, or, and I said his name, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, why, why would he flip flop on this when it appears to be just a kind of a cut and dry um, security issue? And so anyway, um, I don't know. Um, we're going to continue, I think, to see this happen. And, and this is this is appealing for schools, too. Right. Chromebooks. I mean, remember when when netbooks came out circa 2009, you know, it was just the, the processing power wasn't there. The Web hadn't matured. You know, we didn't have the Chrome OS or a lot of things that, you know, that those devices were not yet ready for mainstream. But. For schools and looking at sustainability and return on investment and, and just cost, I mean, it's it's of huge interest for the, the Moore's law, basically, for processing power to get right. higher and higher and and then cost to go down or for you to you know be able to get double the processing power for the same cost, whatever. So anyway, I think this is a very interesting development. Um, it's interesting to see nation states weighing in on essentially cybersecurity issues in ways that we haven't seen before, right? I don't, re I mean, I do remember that, uh, Peggy will remember this, uh, all, uh, Apple folks will, when the Macintosh G4 came out, it was banned because it was considered a super weapon, you know, in terms of its processing power. And Apple then ran ads, you know, showing tanks and then showing the G4 and how it was, you know, so powerful, you just, you know, we're going to have this amazing weapon. Um, but anyway, it's, I guess, so I guess, you know, nation states have been concerned about that kind of stuff in terms of cracking um, cryptography and, and, you know, the, the power that those computers afford. Um, but interesting. And we're going to, my point is we're going to continue to see, you know, knockoffs and, and folks in uh, right. not only China, but India and elsewhere, you know, taking processors that are created by, by different folks. And being able to create phones that are are pretty powerful, and because Android is the open source um, operating system out there, it's going to I would you know make this prediction continue to outstrip iOS um, because of of that cost factor and just the ways that the Google universe lines up against the Apples. But that being said, security is very important. We've seen with the Intel chip. Uh, hoopla, which really I haven't heard a lot about that lately in uh, the past few weeks, but there were firmware updates and things that there were 
theoretical vulnerabilities that were identified in Intel chips and other kinds of chips. And, you know, then patches were issued, which slowed things down. And I, I haven't heard read anything about that being in the wild. But what it points to is that security is a huge issue. It's not just tied to the software that runs. It's also tied to firmware and hardware that you have. And so even though we're seeing things, you know, being sold you know, more affordably, it's very important to keep our eye on security and also updates to get back to the article that you were just talking about as far as Android. Right. Well, and, 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 and broader to the kind of Android alternative market, you know, we're, we're, especially in a global market, and we could have some, some debate about that that's a little more nuanced than, you know, more, man, more phone manufacturers good, but I think it's good when there are other manufacturers in the market, and that's part of what helps Android, I, in, in, in my opinion, rocket a little ahead of, of the iPhone because Android has manufacturers that are working um, really against one another to try to find markets. And so ZTE does have some nice high-end phones, according to reviews I've read, but they also sell a lot of really dirt cheap phones that are good, fairly durable, um, inexpensive Android phones that could be great for a, a kid's first phone or an alternative phone, or if you're looking for a burner phone because you're going internationally and want to just bring a, a cheap phone with you that you can throw a local SIM card into. And, you know, ZTE it was good in that market. So, um, you know, I, there's a, a, we could not possibly introduce the trade uh, piece into this, mostly because I don't really want to get into the politics of it. But, you know, I will say that, that broadly, more more manufacturers in the space is better than less manufacturers in this space. I'll throw a quick related article from the Washington Times on May the 15th. Kaspersky Lab relocating infrastructure to Switzerland amid Russian spying allegations. And as I mentioned on the show, this is of, of interest, you know, more personally to me because we're in, I think, year three of a five-year contract with Kaspersky, and it's the endpoint security solution that we use for all of our Macs and our PCs. Uh, Kaspersky was identified by Homeland Security and the United States government as not being a safe option. And actually, U.S. government computers and military computers, I think, are banned at this point from running it. Uh, we've had articles on the show we've discussed about how Kaspersky might have been inappropriately um, accused because what they're able to do is basically have a bare metal list of every file on a computer system. And so if a hacker gains access to that, they don't necessarily have to gain access to the Kaspersky software and hack the company. But if they gain access to computers running that, then they're able to send queries like, do you have any documents with this, you know, code that means you are, have a classified document, et cetera. So anyway, the article says basically that, you know, they've been accused of this, they maintain their innocence, but to address these perceptions, they're moving to Switzerland and they're moving out of Russia. So will this be enough to, uh, you know, keep them in business? I don't know, but I thought that was a uh, pretty interesting and anyway, ties to some other things that we've got going on with Cambridge Analytica and companies and, you know, changing names or, you know, what, whatever. So sure. Sure. Absolutely. And we uh, probably have quite a few articles. We can go down that trail. Um, should we do a couple more nerdy ones? Then we can jump into those, some of those, uh, as I'm calling it, technology correction news items. Sounds good. Sure. So more Google stuff. Um, I do want to give an update on something we talked about a few weeks ago. We had mentioned in a previous episode that Google had rolled out a brand new interface to Gmail that was more than just a, a pretty new look for 
the uh, mail system, but also had built in a number of new features into it, including some um, artificial intelligence. And I have to say, I stumbled onto something a little bit late because I had to turn off the new interface on my work email. And the reason why is that it, it, it conflicted with a plugin that's pretty critical for me. Uh, my organization utilizes uh, Salesforce as a customer relationship management software platform. And there's a really wonderful uh, conduit between uh, Gmail that we have for our Google Suite for education and the Salesforce platform, and it's just broken, uh, straight up broken on the new version of Gmail. But um, we are uh, reconfiguring right now our Salesforce stuff, and we're still working to implement it. So I turned that off and turned on the new uh, Google uh, uh, interface, and it's it's beautiful first. Second, it, um, I think, gives you a lot more relevant information. You can click on things from the main mail list. That's really awesome. But there have been a lot of advertising about this new artificial intelligence that was built into the interface. And the first thing happened to me today that was absolutely unbelievable. Google kicked up three emails from Monday that I had not answered yet that it thought I should answer. And as it turns out, they were correct three out of three times. These were emails that needed answers. Um, they were, you know, planned to be answered. I mean, I'm still kind of catching up a little bit from my uh, my dissertation stuff from last week. But it said, you know, we think you might want to, you know, answer this email. As it turns out, they were absolutely and utterly correct. And um, it's just really amazing stuff. And I think that notion of, you know, kind of artificial intelligence plus email could make email a killer application again. Um, I would note that there is another interface that, that apparently you can turn on experimentally. It's not available on either my private Gmail or my work e uh, email, which is backed by Gmail. And that is a a an analytic tool that, that helps you write emails and guesses what the next word might be, um, but still, it was wonderful to see that today, and it's a good sign that, you know, artificial intelligence could be utilized to do some great things with email. <laughs> and Gensunite. <laughs> Excuse me, I couldn't get to my mute fast enough. Yeah, I, I, I saw that happening almost in slow motion. So, uh, so uh, are you ready for the machine to take over your email, sir? Oh my gosh, I would love to have help <laughs> with mine. Uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll uh, incriminate myself greatly if I would go into to detail about how much I need that. Um, so yes, please bring bring AI to help address uh, trolling issues and content moderation, you know, issues on social media and you know managing the the oodles of email because one of the dynamics that we have happening in our school and probably in a lot of schools there's really not a limit, right? There's, there's not somebody saying, okay, stop. We've received, you know, 15 or 25 or whatever new emails today at school. And that's it. Um, when I was at the university, we had a digest version called tech analysis at Texas tech and Lubbock. And, and at least you could, you know, opt in for a digest version and it would basically have, you know, kind of like a listserv. You'd have a long list of different announcements that you could do. And it cut down on the number of individual messages that you would get as a member of the university community. But yep, I say bring it on. Um, I did just actually pull something up that as a, as a Google admin for a G Suite, I'm going to be looking into. I had not been able to find the confidential mode. And that was something they talked about among many other features that were coming to the new Gmail. Um, and I now do have that in my personal Gmail, but not in 
our school email. And so it's on the bottom row next to all the icons besides send, uh, where you have font, attachment, uh, link, um, Google Drive file image. And so there's a lock with a little clock on it, a uh, little padlock with a clock. And so you can set expiration of whether you want to expire. This is interesting. Expire in one day, one week, one month, three months, or five years. Yes, I'd like this email to expire five years from now. Um, and then you can, uh, interestingly, require that um, an SMS passcode be required uh, basically making it sort of similar to like a, to a two-step verification, um, which is pretty interesting. Um, I'm still not completely sure, but I think this would only work within Gmail. Uh, is that right, Jason? Do you know, or does this work? I, I would assume so. But I, you know, when I heard you say that, like one of the ways they could do that is they could send the message, but not have it be stored in your email. It could go out to an external server to display the text and then be able to do it that way. But uh. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, the email space has needed some innovation for some time. And, and to be clear, I, I think email is a lot better because Gmail exists. Uh, I'm, I'm a better email user because of, of, uh, Gmail coming into my life in, in 2004 when it was released. I was an early Gmail user and, uh, back in the day where you had to have like a, an, in, an invite from a friend and yada, yada, yada. And I've, I've never really turned back or seen any other email system that comes even close. But I'm really glad to see Google adding, you know, its focus on AI to tools that are used every day. I mean, it's really awesome that you, know, you can do really powerful things and mind-blowing things and very futuristic Star Trek-y things with artificial intelligence. But for them to use a tool that's so uh, prolific uh, in and out of the professional world to really make that interface better for people... It's just a it's just a really clever strategy, and I feel like there's a lot of energy coming out of Google right now that's 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 very similar to that mission. I'll drop this link in. I don't have it there yet in the show notes, uh, but this has caused me to look it up. You do have to enable um, the enhanced message security features of the new Gmail as a G Suite admin. Um, interestingly, you can upload your own certificates, or you can allow users to upload their own certificates. How many people are going to be doing that? Uh, and exchange them with with each other to make them work. Um, so anyway, I'll be looking into that because I know that was something that really did pique the interest of some of our administrators, uh, especially some of our learning specialists that are exchanging emails with teachers about confidential student documents and things like that. Right. So I'm going to definitely be pursuing that, and I'll report back and what I learned and how that goes. Excellent. Uh, where, well, actually, let me take a look at that Google list. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Oh, the Google News revamp, which we didn't get to last week. This was something announced at Google I.O., the developer conference um, in California last week. But um, Google News has refreshed, and um, it I've seen it mostly in the, uh, the app Google News, which has gone from being, um, you know, Good, not or good, not great to be much better in the AI-based world. But apparently, the Google News apps, and I don't know if this impacts the web-based version of Google News. Um, when I look at it, it looks very much the same, whereas the app has been substantially updated. But they are now using a, a kind of an AI-centric uh, uh, news system. Now, uh, to, I'll have to admit that it, it's a little curious to me about how that would be that much different to what they've been doing before, because they use a logarithmic thinking um, to to, to kind of drive Google News before that. Um, but I'm really glad to see 
you're not only adding more AI to it, but there's more video components to it. They are working on magazine formats and are, again, working with uh, various news organizations to make that a, a great experience. So I'm, I'm glad to see that, and um, I'm excited that people are continuing to innovate in that news space. I am, and I've got a related article that I dropped in towards the bottom of the of the show notes, and it's actually a, uh, a blog post versus an article, but it's from a pretty pretty awesome guy we should all know, Dave Weiner. Um, Dave's the guy who basically invented blogging, he invented RSS, and he invented podcasting. So this this is a guru uh, from his blog, Scripting News, on May the 10th, and his article is called The Internet is Going the Wrong Way, and the reason I bring it up here is because one of the things he talks about is where Apple is going with their news. Um, I also am excited to see Google continue to innovate in the email space, in the news space. Um, they definitely have tremendous market power in that. And so I think some of the things they're, they're looking to do, like get, putting your subscription stuff, just tucking it in with the rest of the free and open news, you know, sounds positive. And I'm glad to see them iterating. But you know what? Um, he, Dave is criticizing Google for forcing sites to, to go to HTTPS and for this not being, you know, any kind of a governmental or open, open body decision, but it's just a, a corporation who's pushing this. Um, I had a couple email, uh, Twitter exchanges this past week, weekend about this and, you know, certainly more security sounds positive, but the news piece of this is I'm really also like Dave upset at Apple, right? Because Apple news now opens in an app. It doesn't open on a web page. What is that? You know, we don't need to be siloed and let's, you know, push more and more content, at least at least with Flipboard. Flipboard is an app that works on whatever device you have. And so that when you click a Flipboard link, if you have the app on your device, it opens in the app. But if you don't, it goes to your default browser. And that is the kind of function that we need, you know, for the web. So I am you know, totally opposed to Apple's direction with news in terms of trying to, you know, force us, you know, I'm still on my iPad uh, at times, you know, into the news app. I, I, I resist that. So I'm glad to see Google uh, working to invent, reinvent this. And of course, we need to find ways that journalism can remain profitable. And we need to continue to see um, innovation around just, you know, the, the ways in which journalists and, and journalistic companies can be paid. Um, I would add that uh, I also found that article very interesting, and the point there was was talking about two things. First, it, the the um, illusion um, that he made was the internet was going back to the AOL days, uh, the kind of uh, pre-internet uh, uh, distance information service that kind of contained everything inside of an uh, basically a program on your computer. Imagine uh, only loading one app on your phone and having that be the um, you know gateway to the world, so everything sits inside the app and that the internet is is two or three clicks away and you really can't get to it directly. The other thing I thought was interesting was his criticism of the Medium platform. Um, Medium is a blogging platform that was meant to be kind of the, uh, as, as in his terms, the place of record to dump information that would stay there for a long, long time. And people have built magazines and news services on Medium. And um, it's true that they seem to have pivoted a number of times and that they are going towards many commercial blogging platforms in the past that's becoming more and more and more closed until it becomes a walled off area to where it's not on the open internet anymore. So I, I also found this article to be extremely interesting and uh, would have significant implications for schools. So we rely on the free and open internet in schools. It's why we talk about net neutrality so much on this podcast because we really need the internet to, to basically 
basically allow, uh, you know, all voices, and by voices I mean ones and zeros, to head from one direction to the other and back with no impediment um, and as much as possible in a free and open way. And so this is the design component that really is very similar to net neutrality. A couple other articles, uh, maybe before we jump into the, the correction news. This is just a fun one from The Verge on May 11th. NASA is sending a helicopter to Mars to get a bird's eye view of the planet. Uh, I think this was actually on the National Geographic channel, um, or maybe or maybe it was in Bloomberg News. Anyway, I was looking at a couple different Apple TV uh, app news sources, but um, they had some video of it, and this article shows it as well. Pretty cool. It's going to run, I think, for 90 seconds. It's going to have uh, solar uh, charging panels that are going to, you know, keep it, keep it powered. And because the atmosphere in Mars is so much less dense than what we have here in this, in the, uh, I said in the United States, it's not just in the United States. It's the atmosphere of the planet, uh, in, on planet Earth. Um, the blades of this, uh, essentially drone helicopter are going to, um, have to spin a lot faster and generate a lot more lift. So anyway, I thought that was really cool and it'd be interesting. I don't know how many schools are, are dabbling with, with anything related to drones. I know that in our videography class for high school students, um, several of those students have their own drones. And so they've edited, you know, some drone footage. We were just talking today about the team that's going to live, uh, broadcast our graduation ceremony here in a couple weeks. Um, last year, they got some great drone footage of the, uh, you know, toss of the, of the caps, um, which we will probably not do this year. But anyway, that was, uh, that was kind of fun. And then um, another interesting article, and this relates uh, to, to AI as far as algorithms and ethics that we talk about sometimes from The Verge uh, on May 16th, new Toronto deck declaration calls on algorithms to respect human rights. Now, this isn't anything that's really enforceable, um, and it's not entirely clear exactly, you know, how this is going to play out. Um, but Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Wikimedia Foundation, uh, different groups have, have signed on to this. And what they're basically trying to do is uh, serve as a guiding light for governments and tech companies um, dealing with uh, human rights issues that involve algorithms. So saying that algorithms need to respect basic principles of equality and non-discrimination and um, focusing on obligation for machine learning systems to not discriminate. So I thought both of those were interesting articles and just um, kind of sign, sign of the times. And it's definitely exciting to see this stuff happening with with space. So So much more positive to look at that than, you know, many of the other headlines that we have to talk about. I'm glad we're not a political podcast, by the way. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, so with that said, I, I think we've got probably some kind of politically charged things that, that we should uh, kind of end up on as a large topic tonight. So um, you may remember that several episodes ago that I've been trying to coin a term called the technology correction. Like I want to 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 label the movement that's going on right now as a kind of a pullback from technology. And I, I see a lot of evidence of this around the kind of technosphere, um, the fact that both Google and Microsoft last week um, focused on technology tools that allow you to, to to push your phone away and to, to take off notifications and 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 really take more control, minute control of, of how your device impacts your life. I think this is all evidence the technology correction. But um, let's kind of deal with some of the stories that that are are, are been prominent this week. So first, on um, Wired report on May 10th that the House Democrats have released 3,500 
advertisements that appeared on Facebook that were um, part of the uh, attempts uh, by Russian-related agencies and groups to influence the 2016 election. And um, it, it starts to get, you know, pretty interesting pretty quickly when you start to dig down a little more deeply. Um, the other article that I believe you shared, Wes, was from New York Magazine talking about how half of those uh, advertisements were uh, racially charged advertisements. But they weren't universally about one candidate or the other. They were pro and anti both candidates and in some cases pulled in more subtle uh, political critiques. But having lived through the 2016 election on Facebook, you would have likely seen these advertisements shared or liked or somehow impact you, whether you have a high-browed uh, uh, internet friend group that deals with politics or not. And um, the fact that, first of all, that the numbers and the thousands of ads that can be associated with groups that were attempt are attempting to tamper with the 2016 election, um, uh, that's that's extraordinary in itself, but you start to look at the ads and um, how, uh, well, offensive most of them are, uh, how pointed many of them are, how they play to our, our deepest fears and our, our, our worst feelings, and sometimes the um, you know, less than uh, the better angels of, of our nature. I think this is something that, that we need to be extremely concerned about. And while I think a lot of these super anti-social media folks are a bit um, in, uh, too aggressive in their criticism um, of, of social media tools, you know, freedom to publish everywhere for anyone, which is in a very empowering uh, 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 process in, in 2018, you know, gives everyone the right to do so, including those that have nefarious pieces. So did anything stand out to you, Wes, in, in viewing any of these advertisements or, or directed messagings? Well, definitely. Number one, you know, we are still so open to this as a society. We're going to be manipulated again. That's going to be happening in midterm elections. It's going to yes. it's going to continue because our electoral laws and regulations have simply not kept pace with this. And so I'm glad for these to come out and for us to be able to examine them and see them. But in, in one sense, it's really depressing because I don't think there's been any legislative change uh, or regulatory change that is going to uh, inhibit, you know, governments, nation states, and, and individual groups from conducting similar kinds of things. Now, you know, maybe maybe we're not going to have a, a quiz that, you know, whatever his name was, Alexander, whatever the Cambridge Analytica that came out. But but that all that information is in the wild, right? That you know, different people have that, and they can utilize that. But it really is. Um, it's sobering. Um, we've, I've changed our, our setup. We uh, inherited a dining room table from my parents. And so all my bookshelves here in, in our dining room are gone. Um, but I had a, a they, they moved, but I have a whole collection of, uh, of books that I, I read a lot in college, uh, and some after, you know, about CIA operations and about the ways in which, you know, our government uh, was very, very active in subverting democracy, uh, worldwide, uh, really, um, beginning with, um, the end of the, of the, the Truman administration when Eisenhower uh, took over as president and the Dulles brothers came in as secretary of state and director of the CIA. And so without diving into that too deeply, I'll just say that, you know, we're getting doses of our own medicine basically because the United States government has engaged in, you know, disinformation campaigns, propaganda, all kinds of dark arts when it comes to trying to influence elections in, in other countries. And so what Russia is doing and has done 
uh, and other groups have done isn't anything new. The tools have just become really, really powerful. And I like to think of, of these phones and screens that we look at as radar screens, kind of like we're, we're watching the radar of our lives to see, you know, what's going on and who's contacting us. And so the, the radar screens of our lives are so much more digital today. And, um, you know, the, the tools are so powerful. And so anyway, it just makes me brace, I think, for, for midterm elections and the next election cycle, because I think it's just going to continue. I don't think we're going to see, see this subside, but I'd love to be wrong. Yep, me too. Um, and, you know, um, it, 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 it's probably can turn to a drinking game. Every time uh, Wes and Jason mentioned digital citizenship, you guys can take a, take a sip. But, um, you know, it goes back to if you're not spending time helping students understand this stuff, then you are part of the problem, right? Like this is our mission as educators. And I'm particularly concerned, and, and having been uh, a parent of, of a teenage boy for the last nine months, um, something will be coming uh, sadly to an end soon. Um, one of the things I notice is how much they rely on less than official forms of media to inform themselves of issues that they are curious and thirsty for knowledge about. Um, my kid likes to read Reddit and Reddit is both an amazing platform to find other nerds, to find out what's going wrong with your Chromebook. It's also a place to spread, uh, racist, sexist propaganda. And there's a healthy dose of both. And, uh, Reddit is not a legitimate news source. It points oftentimes to legitimate news sources. It also points to illegitimate news sources as well. And so, you know, we need to be extra cautious uh, about about that process. And, um, you know, to be quite frank, um, you know, uh, uh, pre-service teachers need to be pushed in the right direction here. Current teachers need to be pushed in the right direction here. And I would say it's not in even the least bit inappropriate. If your school doesn't have kind of like a how we how will we inform our students of how to use media correctly plan in place that is is really across the curriculum then i think now's the time to do so and that may sound silly or an overreaction but i don't think it is well another article underneath that uh which falls right in line with that idea of, of helping kids become aware is cnet from may 11th russian trolls targeted teens on facebook with memes yes. and so you know this I we I need to make a a video. We need we need students. Maybe we'll end up having some students this next year doing this. But um, you know, here's an example in an ad promoting uh, this page called Memopolis. Russian trolls wrote, "Welcome to the city of Memopolis." The sponsored content was targeted to people between the ages of 13 and 40, specifically those who had an interest in BuzzFeed or Nine Gag, according to data provided by Facebook. Uh, the trolls spent ninety three dollars and forty four cents on the ad. 19,000 people saw the post, a thousand of them clicked on it. Um, and, and so anyway, it's just, they're, they're, they're working to manipulate public opinion. You know, I mean, maybe we need a whole course on this, you know, how do we manipulate the dark arts for, you know, ma manipulating public opinion? This, and one of the things that's a bit sad about this too is, right, there's all kinds of political folks here, you know, in our country studying this as well. Um, we've always had, lots of different options for people running for political office in terms of the ways they're going to try to influence people. Um, and, and we saw this with the Obama campaign. I remember that Alan November had some of the folks who were behind the Obama campaign. And that was one of the first campaigns. I mean, Howard Dean had done a lot with digital and analyses and, and reaching a younger demographic. Um, but Obama really did that in a big way. And it's just continuing, right? So this is, this is not only going to be happening on national levels, but it's, it's happening on 
state levels in terms of, of the manipulation. And, you know, not all of these things are expressly political or racist, as you mentioned from those articles. Uh, some of it is to try to build a following and to try to look credible. Uh, and so, you know, discerning who is a bot and who's not. Uh, I, one of the podcasts I listened to from Twit is uh, uh, this week in um, Tech News Weekly. And they were saying with the advent of the new Google Assistant being able to make phone calls for you, perhaps there should be something that says, I'm a bot, you know, but we don't have that yet. Uh, we definitely don't have that on Twitter and social media. Um, I have wondered myself if I have engaged with any bots. And, and sometimes when I've seen, and this was particularly true during the election, something that really seemed to be a provocation, I mean, it, it, to me, it was just better. You looked and saw they had less than 100 followers and it just, it, or maybe there was far less than that. But I mean, do I even want to engage with that? And, and I was deciding not to. But anyway, it, it we need to find ways for this to get into the digital citizenship curriculum. In fact, I would love, uh, Peggy Marta, anybody who's listening, if you, um, you know, find in Common Sense Media or any of the other digital citizenship curricula, if there's some, uh, some videos or some some lessons that really dive into this specifically in terms of political um, manipulation and, and the ways in which teens are being targeted. Um, I would love to see that. Yep, very much so. And then one other thought here that actually two other quick thoughts, and then we should probably wrap it up for the week. Um, Cambridge Analytica, which is the company that that is uh, kind of the, the poster child for the, the hacking of data on Facebook, um, there's an interesting article, um, this is from a couple of weeks ago, basically that there was an announcement earlier that Cambridge Analytica had decided to shut down that, uh, 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 very abruptly told employees that we're done and shuttered the doors and took everyone's key card and locked up the offices. But as it turns out, um, basically the intellectual heirs of all this stuff have become a new company that's called um, Emmer Data. Um, and the thing that, that whether Cambridge Analytica exists or, or not, or if Emmer Data is Cambridge Analytica, I don't think this really matters because it wasn't about the company. It was about the movement and it was about the use of data in trying to persuade people in election scenarios. And so I want to caution everyone data and or, or Cambridge Analytica is dead, right? And even if it lives on, it's dead. But that is really very small in comparison to the risk that still exists about data being mined in order to aim advertising and messaging to get people to think a certain way or another. Um, and so we have to be extremely cautious. We have to be protecting of our data and, 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 and be very cautious about messaging that is, is sent towards us really in any medium now. Because to be honest, if they can identify you by your Facebook data, the risk is just as great that you could get, you know, by mail advertising, um, than it would be to get Facebook advertising. It's not about the technology per se, but please know that you are very much aimed um, uh, at as a voter. And what the technology does is utilize effective strategies for really um, uh, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of years to go after voters. And then um, it takes that to a, a very highly efficient level. In fact, even tonight, there's a hotly contested uh, primary for the sole uh, 
uh, representative from Montana to the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, one party um, has been out of that seat for quite some time, and they're trying to get the seat back. Um, and uh, a, a number of very legitimate, uh, uh, very uh, uh, attractive candidates uh, have, have come forward, which is usually not the case in Montana. Oftentimes, one or two great candidates, and then a lot of uh, maybe not intending to be competitive or also rands as a, a term that's used a lot in, in the uh, show The West Wing. But um, the, what's interesting about that, someone knocked on our door tonight um, asking for my wife, um, who was not in home at the time, and um, they already knew a lot about us because they have a voter file and, and they knew, um, you know, uh, who we, we've, we've said we've elected in the past and um, who we've given money to. You know, there's, it's a database that drives that. And all the Facebook and social media pieces do is add a ton more data pieces to that to draw an accurate profile um, about us as voters, which means we can be targeted by advertising. So, you know, be cautious, be, um, you know, curious about, you know, what, how data is, is, is used and how it's being used to get you to think one way or another. One more uh, techie article uh, before we close with Geeks of the Week. Yeah, I think you dropped this in from Microsoft. This is from The Verge. May 16th, Microsoft reportedly working on $400 Surface tablets to compete with the iPad. And pretty interested in this. Um, you know, it's we're, <laughs> we're going to go, I think, to the Minecraft EDU Microsoft version this next year. We've held off with our old version that was the pre, you know, Microsoft. And this is their their entree to get you to do 365 and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, I've been looking at more Microsoft stuff lately. But it is very exciting to see how they're innovating, what their vision of computing is for the future. Um, you know, can they get apps that are worth running besides the web and office? Um, you know, that would be a big question. But from a school standpoint, I think that is a positive thing to see, you know, Microsoft trying to uh, compete in that market. And especially if they're going to try to push the price point down, you know, versus up. Right. And, and also note there, this is, uh, Microsoft's second attempt, actually third if you include the, the, uh, first generation of surfaces that had the ARM processors that were cheap, that they had so many of them, they were, you know, handing them out like candy at ISTE, um, a, a number of years ago. But they also had released an, uh, a, a Surface, not Surface Pro, during the third generation of Surface releases that had kind of an underpowered Atom processor that I actually had the opportunity to use one once for uh, uh, a couple of hours. And it was it was good, not great. I mean, luckily, Windows 10 provides a lot of oomph force for slower processors. But I'll be curious to see what this effort looks like. And considering how great the Surface 3 and Surface 4 Pros are, those are, are quality pieces of hardware um, that, that are pretty decent form factors for portable computing. Um, it seems like that the designers of Microsoft could come up with something that's both inexpensive and powerful enough to make it useful in that platform. Part of the problem, though, is that unless they're going to go with ARM processors, if they stick with the Intel architecture, it's going to be lower on battery life, and Windows 10 is a full-fledged operating system. It requires some oomph to perform, and you know that's where iOS you know, can really dominate. Uh, four- or five-year-old iOS tablets are still 
pretty um oomphy is the term I'm gonna make up tonight, our made up word of the evening. Um you know, they have a lot of kick to them, um, even though they're they're a number of years old. I have a uh three year old um iPad mini two that's running around that's that it, it it's not as fast as when I first bought it because the uh the current version of the operating system is 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 uh thicker than the version that came with it, so it requires a little more oomph to get up and go, but I can still do everything now that I did on it when I purchased it a number of years ago. So good luck to Microsoft. I think a lot of schools would be very much interested in low-cost Surface tablets for their school. I'm looking forward to seeing what the device looks like. And Peggy already responded to the challenge, uh, dropping into the uh, chat uh, for our, our chat room. Uh, Common Sense Media supports the Bot Act to identify bot accounts on social media. And so I dropped that in and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, yeah. Uh, can you identify a bot? How many bots follow you on Twitter? Do you know? Do you care? I, uh, well, I, it's funny because I think there are actually a couple of, uh, a couple of websites that will, will analyze that for you. Uh, the last time I looked about 14%, I believe was the number of, um, of my followers. And I'm, I'm a relatively, um, um, you know, C, C level Twitter at best, but, um, you know, about, about 14% of my followers were, were, were bots. And I imagine that number is, um, at, you know, higher, as higher, higher today. All right. Well, it is the top of the hour. Shall we geek of the week it quickly? Sure. Um, I'll start here today. Um, one of the great things about being done with my doctorate is that I can go back to listening to podcasts again. And um, as part of my morning walk um, and my evening walk, for that matter, and my lunchtime walk, I've moved away from my uh, kind of weird obsession with the West Wing. I'm probably should through, and I'm, I'm, I wish I were joking about this, my seventh or eighth time through that series, um, because wow. I just really like it, and it's it's a lot of escapism for me, but um, I started listening to podcasts again, and I, I, I don't know why this is not talked about more, but the podcasting revolution, I'm just talking about a couple of guys on, on, a, on a Wednesday talking tech for a, a, a small, unique audience that you get a lot of value in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a very um, a contextual conversation. I'm talking about the major media outlets that have, um, you know, dozens of podcasts that are professionally produced with journalists and other um, news outlet folks that provide extraordinary amounts of content. And if you're not using content podcasts in your classroom, you are really giving up an opportunity for what is a professionally produced uh, media-based textbook that could provide Endless fodder for discussion, but ignoring that rant for a second, um, and 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 uh, that particular uh, classroom resource. Um, Popular Mechanics has a really great podcast. I just started listening a few weeks ago. It's called The Most Useful Podcast in the World. And it, it, it's kind of a maker podcast. It's the best way to describe it. And frankly, Popular Mechanics, you know, uh, was aimed at makers before the word maker existed. So it wouldn't be a surprise to anyone that they're at the forefront of producing media, even in 2018, that's aimed at a do-it-yourself crowd. But The Most Useful Podcast in the World is a mix of delightfully nerdy tips, uh, pieces of information. It's everything from a uh, beer to, you know, how to, ch- or how to, to better change your tire. Um, one of the features that they, that appears on some and not all the podcasts is they go back and find advice from 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 year old popular mechanics magazines. that still works in 2018. It's just really delightful. And it's probably no shock to anyone that's listened to our podcast before that I do delight in, 
in, in nerdy things, but this one's particularly enjoyable. So it's the most useful podcast in the world. Um, it is, I, I'm sure on, I, I, I've been actually trying out new podcast apps. It appears on the, the, the four or five of my download on the Edgerine platform. Um, it's worth your time. It's pretty good. And I think you'll find interesting bits that would be useful to you on a relatively frequent basis. Awesome. I've got two quick ones. Uh, the first one is a phenomenal keynote. Sylvia Martinez, who has co-authored a wonderful book about the maker movement with Gary Steger, gave a keynote, um, I think it was in April. It's the in TED 2018. Um, and so it's a 30 minute keynote. Um, incredibly, uh, it's from April 3rd. It only has 65 views, but fantastic. And the pedagogy she espouses in terms of kids making, creating, needing to build, all of that is just totally awesome. So spend 30 minutes, watch Sylvia, give her a shout out on Twitter. And then also on the note uh, or the topic of media literacy and getting our kids more savvy, uh, the wonderful Renee Hobbs, Dr. Renee Hobbs at Rhode Island um, is hosting again, a summer institute in digital literacy. And this is July 15th through the 20th. And I just can't say enough about her media education lab and the work that they've done around copyright, media literacy. And so uh, this will be at the University of Rhode Island. If you have an opportunity to uh, attend, that looks like it's fantastic. Their uh, keynoters are Lynn Cabral and uh, his daughter, I think it's his, yeah, his daughter, uh, Nuala. And the uh, theme is before there were screens, there were stories. And so they're going to consider the future of digital literacy by exploring the relevance, limitations, and power of story in our fast evolving media landscape. So, Jason, where can folks find you when we are not pontificating here on the podcast? Well, I'm on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach, where I do enjoy sharing articles and engaging with others, especially uh, to expand my own horizons, to learn more about uh, technology and education and, and maybe even broader topics related to, um, you know, the world engaging with one another. Um, I do blog uh, somewhat frequently at the Tech Savvy Teacher blog from the Northwest Council of, for Computer Education, blog.ncc.org. And then, of course, I'm here every Wednesday night with you, Wes. And where can people find you on the internets? I'm W. Fryer on Twitter. Speedofcreativity.org is my blog. Um, and I did actually, I think, put up a podcast this last week. So it's been a while. Not podcasting nearly as regularly, but still keeping that podcast alive. Not becoming a pod fader, as I heard that word used a number of years ago. We want to say thank you to Peggy, George, and Marta uh, for joining us in the chat room. Invite anybody to join us live if you can. We're here at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, or extrapolate East and West uh, from there. Uh, but we are EdTechSR on Twitter, and all of our show notes, as we've mentioned, are available at edtechsr.com slash links. So until next time, we encourage everybody to stay savvy and stay safe and remain remain connected using your social media connections constructively to positively change the world.